This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. 2023 is not a big election year, but there are still some state and local elections of significance. And two of the most important are this spring and the coming weeks. On Tuesday, a handful of mayoral candidates square off in Chicago's primary, and incumbent Lori Lightfoot is in trouble. Further north in Wisconsin, an April 4 race to fill an open Supreme Court seat, state Supreme Court seat, gives Democrats a chance to reclaim a 4-3 majority for the first time since 2005. And the implications go well beyond the Badger State. Plus, the Republican National Committee says that to get on the debate stage in the next year in presidential debates, the candidates must promise to endorse the ultimate winner of the party nomination. Is that a good idea or a pipe dream? We'll tell you that. Welcome. I'm Paul Gigo with Kim Strassel and Colin Levy, the estimable ones. Let's start with the uh, Chicago mayor's race. Colin, you fated to live in Chicagoland. I guess it's a choice. I'm a former resident of Chicago, although many moons ago, back when it was a city that worked, Mayor Lightfoot is in third place in the polls now behind Paul Velas, former schools superintendent in the city, and Brandon Johnson, who's the Cook County Commissioner and is the favorite of the teachers' unions. There are some other folks in the race. So how much trouble is Mayor Lightfoot in? I think she's in real trouble, Paul, to be honest. Paul Velas now is taking a fairly significant lead, and she's really struggling to defend her tenure because She's been in office now during some of the worst years that we've seen in Chicago. Obviously, crime is way up. The economy is kind of pinky here and there. You've seen a lot of major businesses leaving the city and leaving the state. And so she's struggling to figure out exactly what she's running on. Paul Vallis has said he's the guy who's going to put the cops back on the street and get law and order back. Brandon Johnson has said he's the guy for the teachers union who's going to throw everything to the public schools. So she's sort of trying to thread the needle and say, hey, look, it's almost like a, you know, you don't want to change horses in midstream kind of argument here. Even when you're drowning in the stream? I mean, even, when, <laughs> even when you're drowning in the stream. What's her case for re-election? It's, it's so bad it could be worse? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think, frankly, one of her cases in the primary has been she's the one who can beat Paul Vallis. There may be something to that. Of course, if it did end up in a final contest between Vallis and Lightfoot, we would have the very fun spectacle of watching the teachers unions have to support Lori Lightfoot. Uh, so that might be a, a terrific <laughs> argument for why that would be a perfect outcome. Let me ask you a question there, Colin. Lightfoot says, I'm the one who can beat Vallis. I mean, what's the argument against him that they're using? He's somehow some right-wing invader in Chicago, which seems implausible. No, for sure. This is a guy who's always been a Democrat. But yes, that's that's what they're trying to say. They're trying to say, hey, this guy's the most conservative. He's sort of a wolf in sheep's clothing, that he has some different ideas about education and he's not going to just go lockstep with the unions. So I think that's what they're really fighting him on. You look at Brandon Johnson, the way they're trying to split up the electorate now. Brandon Johnson is 
definitely really trying to run to the left. He's trying to pick off voters, I think, to Lori Lightfoot's left. He had an interesting thing over the past weekend where he was standing with this guy named Nick Ward, who's a socialist aldermanic candidate. And Brandon Johnson came out and said, hey, you know, everyone's been giving me a hard time saying that I'm a socialist because I'm standing here with Nick Ward. He said, well, hold on a second. I actually need guys like Nick Ward to support me because we're about to pass a budget that's going to tax the rich. That's a direct quote. So I think that's the way the race is breaking down. Yeah, as if uh, Chicago doesn't already tax the rich. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And even the not so rich. Indeed. So the race, Kim, you have not, unlike Colin and myself, lived in Chicago, as far as I know. It's a lovely city. It really is. At least it was. And I think it's depressing as a former resident that a city that, you know, once was great has had so many problems. And, you know, they kind of ran Rahm Emanuel out of town uh, after two terms. And the Chicago Teachers Union is such a power in the city. Their contractors up in 2024. They kept the schools closed during the pandemic for much longer than parents wanted and much longer even than Lori Lightfoot and the formal school district wanted. So their contract's up in 24 and they obviously want Brandon Johnson to continue doing the same thing and writing them big checks, raising their pensions, raising their pay, but not putting any more burdens on them. Yeah, that's right. No, I've never lived in Chicago, although thanks to Colin, I've had many invitations to that city. So I have got to spend some time there. And yeah, it's been very sad to see what has happened. And I think that this is why you have an opening for someone like Paul Ballas. Remember, he actually ran four years ago and did terribly. Uh, I think he only got about 30,000 votes. He finished like ninth. But oh, how things change. And He strikes me as a little bit like a guy like Eric Adams, who ran in New York City, and you wouldn't have ever suggested that Eric Adams was some sort of a conservative, but by the simple fact that he was willing to talk about some reforms and was willing to back the police, things were bad enough in New York that voters paid attention. And this is what you've got happening now. I think people very much understand that Brandon Johnson is going to be a vote for, as you say, the teachers union's status quo. Lori Lightfoot is now, having run as an outsider four years ago, is now trying to suggest that somehow she's the seasoned hand. But people can look around and see what the seasoned hand has got them. And so in Ballas, you have this former public school executive who ran Chicago public schools. Prior to that, he also ran the school district in Philadelphia. So he knows a bit about education. He has suggested about investing more in charter schools. He wants to hire more policemen and also have have them, again, start prosecuting, oh my gosh, misdemeanors. And I think if you are a Chicago resident, that kind of common sense approach, it's, again, hardly a conservative platform, but more common sense in what's being offered from the other candidates who would just seem to be folks willing to bow to the usual special interests that run Chicago. That's why he's getting some note. Colin, this primary will pick the two finalists who will go through to the general in, I guess it's April 4. Who are you predicting uh, makes it through? It's a tough prediction. I think Vallis will make it through. Between Lori Lightfoot and Brandon Johnson uh, would be the next most likely. I think Chuy Garcia still has an outside chance to be in that final. But, you know, I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on Kim's point about the real need in Chicago for just sort of common sense reform, especially on crime. I was reading this morning, there was an interesting poll out from Northwestern University that found that crime and the cost of living are the two most pressing issues on the minds of the city's African-American communities. 
And I think that's something that is going to come into play here, along with just the base turnout, which is going to be a big deal. But many of the neighborhoods on the south and west sides of Chicago are really very unsafe. And the families there are trying to raise children. They're concerned about the schools. They're increasingly concerned about the pervasive crime that spiraled out of control and that the city leadership hasn't seemed to be able to handle. So, of course, there's concerns about other issues, but I think this deep interest in reducing crime and providing more sort of programs that are going to keep children safe is going to be a big one. All right. Thank you both. We'll see what happens. Let's turn to this race for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The mix now is four to three with Republican appointees controlling the narrow majority, but a Republican vote, one of the four, is retiring. So in Wisconsin, there's an election to replace her. And the uh, race for the primary occurred last week, and it was a four-person primary. And Emerging in the top spot is uh, Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasiewicz, a Democrat. She led the primary with 46.5% of the vote, a very comfortable lead. And Republican Daniel Kelly finished second, but well back with only 24%, defeating Jennifer Darrow, who finished Republican with 22%. Democrats really sense an opportunity here, Kim, and uh, Protasiewicz uh, isn't hiding her ambitions and her agenda if she wins. And right now, she's the favorite. Yeah, it's a very concerning because she's been pretty clear in broadcasting, which is unfortunate because we increasingly seem to have these judicial races that are almost proxies for you know the type of races we have in Congress. People are so open about how they're going to judge cases and pre judge cases in their bid for these slots. But she's been very blunt, for instance, on abortion after the Supreme Court's decision returning abortion questions to the state. Wisconsin reverted to a statute it has on the books from 1849 that makes abortion a felony except for in cases where the mother's life is at stake. She's got an ad out in which she says, you know, I believe in a woman's freedom to make her own decision on abortion. So no question there how she's going to vote if that comes up to the court, even though this is something, by the way, that should be decided by the legislative branch and signed by a governor. I think you're going to see if she were to get into this. Democrats are very keen. We've seen this happening across the country to use the Supreme Court to engage in redistricting maps. Wisconsin, like other states following the census, had a number of controversial maps. The current Supreme Court did sign off on them, but Democrats remain very angry about them. And she has already come out and said that she believed that the maps that the court has already agreed to were rigged. So you can definitely see Democrats filing new litigation there if she were on the court hoping to get those maps thrown out. Those are just a few of the stakes at play here. And, you know, we can talk a little bit, too. I think one problem here is the lead conservative justice who's running, Daniel Kelly, who you mentioned. Yes, he clearly split some of the vote with Jennifer Darrow, who was also a more conservative judge, but he has lost a retention race in the past in the state. And so Democrats see a real vulnerability there and are pouring money into this race in an attempt to win over the court. Yeah, Kelly, he was a justice appointed by Scott Walker in 2016, lost a retention race in 2020, which does not bode well for his prospects. I think Proto Seawitz will have more money. There's no question about it. Kelly is running against her on crime, saying that her record in Milwaukee County as a judge is soft on crime. 
But the race here, Colin, is interesting as well because it looks as if the abortion issue is cutting against Republicans again. The turnout in this race primary was extraordinarily high for a spring off-year primary. And a lot of Democrats seem very motivated by abortion because by an accident of history, the overturning of Roe v. Wade meant that the Wisconsin abortion law reverted the state law to an 1849 statute, that's even before I was born, that makes performing an abortion a felony except to save the, uh, the mother's life. So that's obviously on the extreme end of the abortion restrictionist spectrum. And that, I think, is motivating Democratic voters here. I think it certainly is. And I think also, Paul, this is going to be a major turnout race, and it's going to be a major money race. I mean, some of the funds that are pouring into this race now, as you said, are just on track to break all records. We saw enormous money poured into the primary, and that's only going to get higher. I think the previous record in the country, I believe, comes out of a court race in Illinois, where I think there was $15 million spent on that race. And this one certainly looks like it's headed to surpass it probably easily. You know, I think the national money that's coming in has to do with these big issues and turning these state races, the state court races, into sort of high-profile national-style campaigns. You know, listening to Protosei was talking, you could think just as easily that she might be running for, you know, Congress or, or running for governor. And I think I wanted to talk, too, a little bit about the fact that, as Kim mentioned, the discussion of the drawing of the maps and Protosewitz saying that anyone would see that these maps were somehow rigged. I think we need to be really explicit about what the maps are about. What you have here is that you want, national liberals want to be able to take control of state legislatures, right? So the Democrats are frustrated if they can't get control of a state legislature. There's all sorts of things that they can't do. So if they can just fight in one race, and get a friendly judge to overturn the maps and line things up the way they want, then they think that they have a chance to get more friendly lawmakers in. So I think that's something that is going to be really high in the minds of all of the outsiders who are pouring money into this race. When we come back, we'll talk some more about the Wisconsin race and its national implications, as well as the Republican National Committee and its pledge. If you want to get on the debate stage, what do you have to do when we come back? WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker. Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. That is, Play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Jigo with uh, Colin Levy and Kim Strassel. Let's finish up on the Wisconsin race, Kim, and talk about the implications because I grew up in Wisconsin. I follow its politics. And over the last 10 years, and Colin knows this particularly intimately because she covered this for us, debate over Act 10, which was the law that Scott Walker and the Republicans passed in 2011, that was a law that limited collective bargaining for public unions. And that was challenged by the left. 
and ultimately went to the state Supreme Court. And I think the liberal majority there, had it continued, would have overturned that law, would not have allowed it to stand. I also think that, as you say, the uh, redistricting that's been done, that would be in jeopardy. And many other things could also be in jeopardy here because that's the history of the court in Wisconsin before some of the Walker appointments changed the contours of the court. So this is uh, very significant. Oh, absolutely right. And look, that 2011 law, Act 10, still really rankles the left, especially because other states have looked at it and thought about putting in effect their own versions of it, which really does diminish the power of government unions. And of course, this has been one of the strengths still among unions has been state workers. You've seen union membership falling in private settings, but they've still been generally going strong. And so that's why they've had such concern with this law. But some of the other things that would be at risk in Wisconsin, you know, it has a right to work law. That is something the left is gunning for, too. It's voter ID laws. It has a voucher program for private schools. And all of these things, you can very easily see left-leaning interest groups ginning up legislation to go back up to a altered Wisconsin Supreme Court that now has a liberal majority in an attempt to get the court to stomp all over the rights of the legislature and essentially just throw these things out by judicial fiat. And this is why you see these races, as sort of as Colin was saying, have become so much more important in terms of Supreme Court decisions and these races for the court control. Just in the last midterms, uh, there was a couple of really high-profile battles fought. The Republicans ended up sweeping three Ohio seats that were up and keeping their control over the Ohio Supreme Court. In North Carolina, they managed to flip a seat on the North Carolina court and turn control back to a conservative majority. So Wisconsin, yes, there's a lot of attention on this because on the other side is Eric Holder. He runs the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. This has been his only job since he left the Obama administration is spending a lot of money in these court cases trying to get liberal majorities in all these Supreme Courts. I would just add that the Republicans are now with this race and their narrow majority paying a price for nominating some of the weaker candidates. I mean, they, they lost a governorship narrowly last time because they nominated, I think, the weaker candidate of the uh, two that were the, the leaders in that gubernatorial primary. And now I think Doro, in my view, would have been the stronger candidate, if only because she hasn't already lost a race. And so she'd be able to introduce herself to more voters without that baggage. All right, we'll see what happens in that runoff on April 4. Let's turn to the Republican National Committee, an interesting development in the presidential race, which is that the party uh, committees now want to require that a candidate that wants to participate on the debate stage in the coming months, first debate now scheduled for August of the presidential cycle, that candidate will have to pledge to support the eventual party nominee. Let's listen to Ronald McDaniel, the party chair. I think it's kind of a no-brainer, right? If you're going to be on the Republican National Committee debate stage asking voters to support you, you should say, I'm going to support the voters and who they choose as the nominee. As RNC chair, if I said I wouldn't support the Republican nominee, I would be removed from office. I would. I'd be rightly removed. It'd be part of our bylaws, and I would be kicked out as RNC chair. Anybody getting on the Republican National Committee debate stage should be able to say, I will support the will of the voters and the eventual nominee of our party. 
Kim, good idea, bad idea, or doesn't it matter because you can't enforce it anyway? (laughs) (laughs) Look, you know, we went through the exact same fight back in 2015. They had a pledge the RNC put forward. 16 Republican candidates signed it, and Donald Trump held out. And he said at the time it was because he wanted assurances that he, as Donald Trump, was going to be treated fairly by the Republican Party because he was obviously viewed as a bit of an outsider at that point. And he finally put his name to the pledge in the end. Of course, it didn't matter. It ended up helping Trump because other members of the party then ended up having to pledge to support him, even though there had been some quite ugly battles that went on in that particular primary fight. So it's going to be the same situation now. Everyone's looking at Donald Trump, who recently told Hugh Hewitt, the radio host, you know, he was asked if he would support the ultimate nominee. He said it would depend on who the nominee was. So everyone's saying, well, will he sign this this time? But I would point out the other side of it. You have Asa Hutchinson, who recently said that Trump's acts on January 6th disqualified him from being president again. And so you're going to have candidates like that who are going to be asked to sign this pledge in the event that Donald Trump were to win the primary race. And are they willing to support him? You're right. You can't enforce it anyway. I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea for the RNC to at least be asking, because this is obviously the huge question out there is Donald Trump, you know, goes into this and he's going to have some tough competitors and he's not necessarily a shoe in but he really wields a lot of influence over a significant chunk of the primary. And if he loses and refuses to get behind the ultimate leader or even launches his own independent bid, that could rip the party to shreds. I raise a question of whether it's enforceable, because if there's a candidate who has significant support, like Trump undoubtedly will, is it really likely that the RNC will keep that person off the debate stage? I think it's much less likely to happen. So there is a sense in which this is a hollow pledge. But, Colin, I also think it's an interesting proposal because it demonstrates I think the degree to which the party uh, understands that there is a significant risk here with Donald Trump, that even if, and you hear it privately when you talk to candidates, you know, they say, look, and that reflects, I think, some reluctance on some candidates to get in. Look, if I get in and even beat Donald Trump, he won't let me win because he can't accept defeat. He can't accept to be described as a loser. And therefore, he has to explain somehow why he lost unfairly. And that bitterness will carry over into the general election, and it could hurt the Republican Party nominee if it's not Trump. Now, Trump has his own baggage, a significant baggage, and I think if he is the nominee, I'm not sure he can defeat Joe Biden. In fact, I doubt he can. But if somebody else gets a nomination, Trump could run as a third-party candidate or basically tell his supporters, look, even if he doesn't say it explicitly, don't support the nominee, could make it pretty clear that he doesn't think that person should win. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you make a good point here. There's really that to consider that if there's anyone here who has no problem breaking a pledge after having made the pledge, that person is probably Donald Trump. And, you know, along the lines of Kim's point, I think it's probably a more serious pledge for Republicans who they sign it and say they'll do it, that they really would have to line up behind a Donald Trump candidacy, which some of them might be uncomfortable with. And also, which I'm not sure, you know, we are in the process, certainly, of a significant wreck 
reckoning in the future of the Republican Party. And I understand the idea that everybody sort of needs to get on the same team, but also just forcing everyone behind a Trump candidacy. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I love it. You know, the RNC chair said she thinks it's it's a no-brainer. I actually, I don't think it's a no-brainer. I think the most notable thing here is probably that any kind of statement like this was even necessary. I know we did it last time, but can you imagine 20 years ago needing to even needing to even ask? Now, now Colin, some of us can remember when John Anderson ran against Ronald Reagan in 1980 <laughs> <laughs> as a third party candidate. He took nearly 7% of the votes in the end. And there was a significant concern at the time uh, among Republicans that somehow Anderson would steal the votes from Reagan and Reagan would lose. Now, in the end, Reagan won just about 50%. Jimmy Carter collapsed and won only 41% of the vote, so that didn't hurt the Republican candidate that year. But I do think you're right. If Trump gets the nomination, you're likely to, certainly Liz Cheney's not going to let, let it go. And there are going to be others who consider running a third-party candidate. And that could cut into Trump if he's the nominee, because there's an awful lot of Republicans, I think, who after January 6th, do not want to vote for him. Now, it's hard to say what the position of the country will be in there. Will we have had a recession? Will the war in Ukraine or elsewhere be a lot more dangerous? So you don't know what the state of the country will be at the time, but I think the chance of a division within the GOP is significant. Last word to you, uh, Kim. Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is generally a good thing to be throwing out there. Raise it. And like you said, what is important is that it shows an awareness. Everybody is aware of the potential issues here. Now, I should just mention as well that we shouldn't sort of suggest that running as a third party candidate is something that is actually easy to do. It's very arduous. It's very costly. Sometimes by the time that decision is made, it's past the deadlines that states have for registering to run on a different party. So that is also sort of cutting against that potentially happening as well, too. But I think the important point, as you said, Paul, is just that this is a party that's going into this primary with its eyes wide open, and it understands some of the big risks. And it's probably good to see it trying to take some steps from the start that is going to minimize the potential for a fracture within the GOP. All right. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Colin. Thank you all for listening. We're here every day on Potomac Watch. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast distribution network. And please join us tomorrow and every day on Potomac Watch.